trail and ultra runners what is going on what's happening welcome to another episode of the coop cast as always i am your host coach jason coop and on this episode of the podcast we have prolific podcaster and accomplished author adara and finn adara and is the author of three critically acclaimed books running with the kenyans the way of the runner and the rise of the ultra runners which many in the audience will be familiar with Adara Ann's first title was named Sunday Times Sportsbook of the Year. He won Best New Writer at the British Sportsbook Awards, and he has twice been shortlisted for the biggest prize in all of sports writing, the William Hill Sportsbook of the Year. He writes regular feature articles for The Guardian, The Financial Times, The Telegraph, Runner's World Magazine, and many other publications. He's an accomplished runner in his own right with 10 ultramarathon finishes to his name and has a best marathon time of two hours and 50 minutes. He and I have had many conversations over the course of years about how to get elite Kenyans into trail and ultramarathon running. And this is no easy task. There are a lot of hurdles in the way. There are a lot of barriers to overcome, but I think that is something that we can actually make happen. And we walk through how it can happen. So sit back, enjoy the conversation. Let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Adara and Finn. Have you had a lot of traction from your book? Uh, yeah, I think so. It's, it's interesting. It's done very well in, in, in the English language. Yeah. Uh, so in, in the UK, I'd say it's possibly my biggest book. Uh, globally, like running with the Kenyans just was was a phenomenon really uh, globally particularly in like spanish and italian for some reason they were hmm. like totally into it but yeah it's uh i find what's quite strange about it is uh i kind of thought a little bit that people in the ultra running world wouldn't like it because i was going to put everybody off ultra running i thought that my experiences were just going to make people think oh no way i want to do that and I've been totally surprised the number of messages I get from people saying, oh, God, this book's dangerous. Now I want to do an ultra run. Now I've heard this. I, I want... <laughs> and it's funny. I realized a bit like Dean Karnazi's first book. I mean, he just describes how it, when I read that ultra marathon, man, I thought, no way. I'm not going near that. But for other people, I was like, yeah, that's what I want. I want that. You know, I want that just pulling myself to pieces experience and uh and it seems the same reaction has happened to mine, which I was surprised by. I was, uh, I was like, "Really? You read that and you want to do it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's interesting." <laughs> Things like that are good catalysts, though, because you know, it, 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 with Dean's book, and I think with your book as well, it brings out like the human element. It's actually like real people that are doing this stuff. It's not you know, Martians that have descended from another planet that have some yeah. sort of physiological capabilities that are beyond normal humans. I mean, it's, I mean, Zach is a great example of that, right? I yeah. mean, he's a, no, he's a normal person, yeah. you know, very humble, you know, upbringings, you know, hard worker and things like that. Yet they can do these like incredible things uh, on the mountain yeah. that, you know, a lot of people yeah. would just kind of look at and go, wow. Yeah. 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 No, no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's relatable and it's uh, yeah. And, and like, in some ways it's easier than like, it's easier to do an ultra marathon and get to the finish. If that's the goal, which it kind of becomes for most people is getting to the finish. Then say, you know, breaking a certain time in the marathon or, or running, you know, a fast mile or something, because that you got to have the ability to do that. Whereas with an ultra run, if you're not looking to win it, but you're looking to get there, 
it's it's just bloody mindedness determination and, and that's something people go well i could do that you know they think they can obviously a lot of people don't make it but uh, <laughs> it, it's a challenge that that is attractive to people they're gonna it feels like it's a testing testing who you are isn't it it's testing my own metal am i am i strong enough to do this i want to know that myself well there's, there's that old saying that adversity brings out who you really are it tests who you yeah. really are versus who you want to be and ultra running is rife with adversity and you know being able to challenge yourself so you actually do it is a there there's a lot of soul searching that goes on in yeah. these events as, as yeah. you as you've witnessed right <laughs> yeah exactly exactly it's funny as well i i wondered if it was just me that i that's just what happened to me and so I was a little bit worried that people go, well, what's he talking about? I run ultras all the time and I don't have any of those issues. But again, it's definitely resonated with a lot of people. A lot of people, you just capture what it's like. So uh, when you when you wrote that book, um, you know, ultra running at the end of the day is a really small audience. We, I mean, in ultra running, we like to think that you know, that we're the shit and there's like so many ultra runners all over the world. But the fact of the matter is it is the quintessential niche of a niche. I mean, it is a small niche within running, which is a small segment of the total, you know, athletic or health population. But when you were writing that, did you realize it would have such, like it would kind of like transcend out of the hardcore trail and ultra runner category like into other everyday people would pick it up and find it entertaining and interesting i mean i kind of i kind of wrote it hoping that would happen because uh i like my i i tried to do that with all three books not make make them more of a a story about an experience that you don't necessarily have to go through you don't have to be someone who's who's been to kenya or someone who's an ultra runner you can just it's like I might pick up a book about what I did recently about a kid who swam the English Channel, and I'm not going to go and do that, but it's a fascinating story, you know, when people push the limits. And so I kind of wrote from that perspective. I tried to be the out. So I was the outsider coming in, although I was a runner, I would never done an ultra. And so that's that was my goal. Yeah, it was to kind of bring it to a wider audience. So, so almost you could live it through me vicariously. You know, you didn't have to didn't have to do it yourself. And in a way I thought, like I said, I didn't think people would read it and then think they want to do it. They just read it and go, well, there's these crazy people out there doing this crazy stuff and I've read about it and that's fine. But uh, then, then more and more people have started, you know, on who've read that book have said, well, now I want to actually do it. <laughs> but uh, How many have actually done it? I don't know. A lot of people say, I've just read this book and now I want to do an ultra, but then, You'll see, you'll see though. I mean, one thing that I've learned from, from Dean and just, you know, getting his counsel over the years and hanging out with him over the years is that when, when you write a a work like that, when you have a book like that, that is about one specific thing, but people outside of that specific thing or who do that specific thing can identify with, can identify with it. People will come up to you for years and go, this is what got me into whatever it is, ultra running, archery, kind of what, whatever the, you know, whatever the hobby or the sport group is. I think you're, I think you're going to find that with that book. I think it's going to stick around. It's going to have a long tail. That'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And like Zach says, it's, you know, sometimes it's just people appreciating like someone trying their best through, through adversity and being faced with a challenge and coming through with it. And, it doesn't even matter that it's running, but it, you know, like I say, it could be swimming or cycling or, or 
mountain climbing or just walking across the desert or something. So it has that <laughs> sense of kind of human endurance, doesn't it? Human perseverance, which I think attracts people. But yeah, yeah, it'd be lovely if it, if it lives on and, and people, you know, I don't know. I feel a little bit like, you know, when people say they, 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 they start, they want to do an ultra run because of my book. I'm kind of imagining like three quarters of the way through that race and they're really at that point where they're like, oh, what am I doing here? And they're going to start cursing my name. <laughs> and uh, It's your I fault. Think, I kind of want to, <laughs> yeah, that stupid book. I hate that book. I'm going to burn that book when I get home. So I'm always wondering if, if that's going to happen. I ha- nobody's told me they've done that, but they might have done. <laughs> okay, let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, both of your recent books, right? Way of the Kenyan and Rise of the Ultra Runner and how they've, how, how you and I have had some dialogue about like those have kind of fused together. And I think, to, I think we're going to have to like walk back a little bit and yeah. set the table with a, it was a project, essentially like a pet project almost that you were trying to orchestrate where you wanted to bring some world-class Kenyans over to the United States and have them do a proper competitive ultra marathon Let's yeah. set the table with that and then kind of go back and forth with what you and I went back and forth with during that time. Yeah. I mean, it, it, unfortunately it was a ill-fated project uh, and, and perhaps maybe isn't, isn't finished, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think I began with, I think before I'd even started the old training, but I'd become aware of our training and I was starting to watch it. And I think I may have had this inclining inkling that I was maybe going to write about it. And so I was watching the UTMB, the start of the UTMB, and the talk, and the you know the atmosphere is 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 epic, and the music's playing, and all the stars on that front row, they're all standing there like the, the kings of ultra, you know, of endurance running basically. And and someone who's just been living in Kenya, writing about Kenyan runners, I'm just looking at them, going, well, "Where are the Kenyans? <laughs> what, what is this sport? I thought this was long distance running. Where what's going on?" And then which may not be the obvious thought to anybody else watching the UTMB. So that was, that thought stayed in my mind. Uh, and then I just, the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, these guys do all their training on trails. They, you know, they can, they can run, you know, they, they only run 42 kilometers because that's as far as anyone has ever told them about that. You know, they didn't, I, would, I, I was going back and forth to Kenya at least once a year and I, started talking to people about ultra running because I was hearing it and they just couldn't believe it. People run like <laughs> 50 miles, a hundred miles. They were like, it was like crazy thoughts to them. And they're like, well, why do they do this? And did they die? And you know, how do they survive? <laughs> <laughs> crazy question. Like even a 50 mile race, I had this guy saying, how many days does that take? And I'm like, well, that's less than two marathons. It's not going to take you days. And so they had no kind of concept of it. So they didn't even know it existed. So you had these two kind of worlds of running like Kenyan long distance runners and then long distance running ultra running. And they didn't even know they existed. The two worlds basically didn't overlap. Uh, and so I kind of, there, there, there are a few overlaps. There are a few things. Like, so there's the mountain running world, which is usually shorter than ultra running. And there, there seems to be for some reason, a kind of strong Ugandan team yeah. in that. And as we've seen on the track recently, and, and on the roads, Ugandans are, are, you know, I mean, Uganda borders Kenya. In fact, they're the same ethnic group. The the uh, the Kalenjin, who are the main Kenyan runners, mm-hmm. are also the Ugandans who are running all Kalenjin as well. So, you know, 
Europeans hundreds of years ago split those two into separate countries, but they're the same group living in very similar terrain, living very similar lives. So these Kalenjin Ugandans were doing mountain running, which was interesting. Uh, and then you've got the Comrades Marathon, which is all the South Africans, and then the Kenyans and Ethiopians were coming down there and running that. But Comrades seems to exist in a separate world. Uh, mountain running seems to exist slightly separately from the ultra trail running world. And yet the ultra trail running world seemed to be where the buzz was from where I could see Killian, Killian Jornet, Jim Wormsley, Zach Miller, you know, uh, you know, all the names. So the, this seemed to be where the buzz was. And yet the Kenyans knew nothing about it. And I, and I thought, well, you know, I, let's do something about it. Let's in, I, I felt like let's just introduce them to each other. Let's say, Kenyans, there's this this other bit of running you didn't know about. And this other bit of running, you know, I know you might have been hiding from the Kenyans perhaps <laughs> a little bit. But, and, and, and I had that, I, I don't even remember, there's a, I, basically I, I began by trying to get some sponsorship because I also mm-hmm. thought it would be quite exciting because when a Kenyan runner is asking me, whenever I get a Kenyan, they're saying, can you get me a race? I know if I go to a, a marathon race director and say, oh, I've got this, you know, 208 Kenyan runner, he's like, oh, yeah, I mean, you and 20 other agents have got a 208 Kenyan runner. I'm just not interested. Right. You know, unless it's Eli Kipchoge or one of those top guys, it's just another Kenyan to me. Whereas a Kenyan runner in an ultra race is much more interesting. Right. Right? Suddenly he's he's unique. He, and so I felt like he had some selling point here. So I started trying to get the sponsors involved. And, uh, yeah, one guy at one of the big – I feel reluctant to say names because – I don't want to get myself into trouble, but he was, he was, he was like outright, basically, I mean, you know, I don't want to use the, the big word, but he, you know, he, he basically said, we don't want the Kenyans in ultra trail running. He said, because Kenyans are just machines built for running. We want people with real life, real stories, real humans, he even said real humans. Uh, so, so there was a kind of resistance there. And, and he said that the Kenyans had ruined marathon running, they'd ruined cross-country running by just winning all the time. And I just felt like, and I'd always had this, I'd written articles about this before, how people would just see a Kenyan runner and just it's just a Kenyan runner without getting to know the personality behind it. And every Kenyan runner is an interesting person. As, as people have finally got to know Eliud Kipchoge, I mean, he's been around for years and people weren't getting to know him. Now everyone talks about him as this wise guy who reads and is full of wisdom well he's always been that guy but just nobody took the time to get to know him and so these guys have got stories they're not all just Kenyans anyway so I I was a bit annoyed by that but then I decided I just gotta I just gotta make it happen gotta get them over and so actually before I spoke to you I think before the the California thing we actually got a guy over to run in the UK I think that came first uh, and he dropped out. He was leading the race and he drops out of the race because he'd hurt his toe. Not a very good start. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was an interesting, he was le- leading a 50 mile race. He was 30 miles in. He looked as easy as anything, barely breaking a sweat, comfortable, but he had a sore toe and, and he just wouldn't carry on. We found some bigger shoes for him. Uh, he was just like, and and I have like in the book, I, I kind of go into lots of thoughts about why this may be. And, and you know, this all conjecture. It's just one guy. But uh, he certainly wasn't going to risk his. I think he had thoughts of marathons coming up. He didn't want to risk himself, you know, for this bizarre 
scene that he was running around these woods, five laps around this wood in, in fr- frosty England. He was like, <laughs> I don't need this, you know. And and so anyway, so he gave up. But then uh, then I, I had a friend in California uh, called Conyers, Conyers Davis. Now, he, he actually read Running with the Kenyans many years before. And uh, he decided he wanted to get some Kenyans over from the book, some of the characters from the book to run the California Marathon. And it was quite a funny story because at that time I was actually writing my book on Japan. So I was living in Japan and uh, he he brings over Jaffet and Shadrach, two of the guys in my team in, in Kenya. But he's such a great PR guy, Konyas. And he's actually, he's like Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh publicity guy so when Arnold Schwarzenegger was becoming governor of California so he he's he's just knows how to pull strings and this kind of stuff so he fundraises to get them over this is all independent of me I'm doing nothing about this at all I'm in Japan doing something completely different but I'm following it online he gets them over and it's brilliant because he has them on CNN he has them on the front page of the Sacramento Bee like these and the people are like these guys have come all the way from Kenya to run the California Marathon, <laughs> and I'm thinking every year there's Kenyans right. running the California Marathon. Why is this news suddenly? And it's just because Kenyans had had got the excitement going. I mean, he tied it in with the book, which was I guess was a slightly different angle. But anyway, so they ran. They didn't do that well, but he he coined this phrase Kenyafornia, and he basically said you're getting. Ca- Kenyans to California was was this project, Kenyafornia. So when he heard about my ultra running project, he got really excited. He was like, let's get them to race in California. And so we picked with the same guy who dropped out for some reason. Basically, he he, he felt I felt like he'd managed it very well. He felt like he was a good runner. He was a 208 marathon runner. He just he was keen to try again. He felt a bit bad that he dropped out. And so we decided to try again uh, with with Konya's backing and Konya's kind of publicity skills. And so we got uh, Francis, his name was Francis Keegan, and uh, a female runner called uh, Rispa Kimeo. And she's 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 she won actually weirdly. I had I'd met her before at a marathon. Turns out she was the 50 kilometer world champion, <laughs> which she just entered on a whim, uh, the world championships and and won. So she had some durability, clearly, a 229 marathon runner. So this was exciting. Yeah. You know, these guys were going to go. And the idea originally was Lake Sonoma, I think, Lake yeah. Sonoma 50. And so I just felt like, well, last time I just left Francis to his own advice, I thought we needed to give him some advice on training and coaching and what he needed to do. So so I got in touch with you. I can't remember if I had, I had your book, but I think somebody, possibly Gary Gellin, told me to talk to you it was uh, definitely gary <laughs> <laughs> and, and when gary tells me to do something i have to do it <laughs> it was definitely so, uh, gary he's a good guy and and so yeah so you kind of helped me uh give these guys some advice on training and uh but they're quite funny in kenya they they they're not very good with specific training and <laughs> i don't know i don't know where it all <laughs> fell down they, they first of all they said we want a program and I was like, you want to program? Okay, well, you know, because I was just thinking, just do some longer runs, you know, try eating on the run. Uh, and I think I think you'd, you'd be interested to know your thoughts on on the whole process now because you you were kind of 
wanting to get some information from them, which you just, I just couldn't get from them. Is yeah. That, you remember that? Yeah. So to, to kind of further paint this picture a little bit, it's been postulated for years, yeah. just as you had alluded to in, in that run up that once Kenyans start to run trail ultramarathons, it's all over there. We're going to see yeah. the same dominance in the trail yeah. and ultramarathon space that we see in the marathon space once they get into it, but they're not interested in it for whatever reason. There's not enough money. They don't have the access. They don't understand yeah. it and on and on and on and on. And I, that, that story has kind of been like kicked around enough that I think that it has, I think that it has some chops. I know that my elite athletes that I directly work with are interested in seeing that happen. I know mm -hmm. that other elite athletes that I don't work with, they want the competition, right? They want to yeah. kind of settle this whole thing out. And so I've always, I've always thought that any way that I can help facilitate something like that, great. Yeah. I can, I'll try to help facilitate it. I'll help facilitate it. And so you reached out to me and this, it was a weird athletic situation because I'd never worked with an athlete where I didn't have some sort of like direct line of communication. In fact, I don't know yeah. how many, how many, how many, uh, how many polls of how many telephone polls we had to go through to relay a message from yeah. the athlete to you, to me, and then back. There might've been like seven different things or whatever. But the one thing that was striking me, so we were trying to get these two Kenyans ready for Lake Sonoma, which is a highly competitive race. And I think a race that's well-suited for a traditional roadrunner to come in yeah. and be competitive. Yeah. It's not, it's not that technical. It still has a good amount of climbing. And so it yeah. could be viewed as the, is the right race, right? It could be viewed as the public as kind of like a legitimately competitive race. That's not so over a roadrunner skill set that it's unfair yeah. or anything like that. I thought and also a, not, and also not the other way around. It's not correct. like a 50 K yep. where you're kind of basically just tacking a bit of on the end of a marathon. So 100%. Yeah, it was kind of a good meeting point, I think. Yeah. hundred percent. But the, the one thing that, that kept striking me and it's so interesting, it's so interesting to hear you describe, um, just how to hear you describe describing ultra running, uh, ultra running mm -hmm. to the Kenyans of where they, it might, you might as well have been describing like professional wrestling or throwing yeah, darts yeah. or like something yeah. just like completely bizarre. The questions that I was getting from you and the information that I was having to relay back, it's like, I wasn't even talking to somebody who had run ever, ever, ever yeah. before, <laughs> much less be a world, a world class endurance athlete. It's like, yeah, you got it. Like learn how to carry a water bottle. Okay. Let's step like, let's step yeah. one. <laughs> let's, let's eat a gel. On your road. So, yeah. well, you don't have gels. It's like, okay, let's figure out how we're going to get them gels. <laughs> like very, very, very back, back down, yeah. back down to the basics. And the, the outcome of the story outside of like, just trying to like rudimentary, like get it off the ground is nothing ever ended up materializing, which is really unfortunate. No. Yeah, it is unfortunate. And it, and it was, some of it was down to bad luck. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the water bottle thing—I remember they—they—they they, they were like, "What? We have to carry the water." You know, they used to marathons where the, it's on the table there, waiting for you. You go yeah, every five k, you grab the water, and and yeah, things like that were just so alien to them that. But that—that's where you had to begin, you know. And that's how, if if it is ever going to happen, somebody's going to have to go through that process with them, and and you know, there are things you can learn. There are things you can, you know, they're not unsurmountable problems. Uh, and although they run on the roads, like I say, they do all the training on the trails, particularly in Ethiopia, actually, they, they, they run on mountains. Like in Kenya, it's kind of rolling hills, but yeah. in, 
in Ethiopia, they do a lot of the training on, on kind of very steep mountainsides. So yeah. it just, to me, it all made sense. The other thing I found quite interesting is I, the more ultra runners I discovered, uh, and I asked them, partic- and it was particularly these guys in the US, it's kind of a more of a US thing that guys come through like the college track yeah. system. Yeah. Like in, Euro- in Europe, they often come through hiking or something, you know, they're like mountain people. Uh, but a lot of them, in like so Zach Miller and Jim Wamsley are the two examples on the top of my head, but it was more than that. I had been steeplechasers yeah. at college. And of course, of all the events that Kenyans dominate more than any is the steeplechase, right? Because they can, they can deal with hurdles and obstacles. They don't need flat, smooth road. This is just because that's all the races are on. So, so yeah, it was exciting. I mean, I don't know if you want me to tell how it didn't happen for your listeners. I can, I can go through the, <laughs> the, 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 the catalog of disasters that, that happened as a result. Let's take uh, their catalog is a great word, great way to describe yeah. it. Let's take like the top two, but I, and I, I think, it, I think it is actually interesting because a lot of times we put these like sub 210 men marathoners or sub 235 women marathoners, sub 233 types of women marathoners kind of up on a pedestal that they can do any type of running race. And the way that the whole house of cards crumbled with this initial project with like Sonoma illustrates just the opposite that you actually do have to take some very deliberate steps in order yeah. to be prepared for these. So how did it all, how did it all start to, how did it all start to crumble? Yeah, exactly. I mean, in partly, right. It's the, it's the whole system around Kenyan running right. couldn't deal with ultra running. And one thing that's quite amusing is they have like, they're used to running, particularly the road runners, 10 K half marathon and marathon. And, and generally a half marathon pays more than a 10 K and a marathon pays more than a half marathon. Right. So there's this idea the further you run, the more you earn, right? Yeah, right. And then we get the ultra running and the money goes down, but you're running further. They're like, wait there, I get 10,000 to win the marathon and 1,000 to win the ultra marathon. That doesn't make sense. So, you know, the whole idea of, you know, a lot of these guys and, and Killian's obviously the, the key example, but lots of the top ultra runners are, are not surviving on prize money. You know, that's not how it works. It's a different model. And so that was a big issue. Uh, and, and in some ways, that was the first problem because then we we had them set for Lake Sonoma. I think Francis got injured. I think that's what happened. Yeah. And then Rispa at the last minute pulled out. She did another she race. At a place she got off at a place at a marathon. Yep. And she just didn't even tell me. Just like two days before, <laughs> said, "Oh, I'm going to Rome, run, run, Rome marathon." So that was a disaster. And. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, you just, it, there's, there's a lot more groundwork. And I, I was a bit naive thinking I could just approach a couple of Kenyan runners. I, I went in there and said, you want to run an ultramarathon? They're like, yeah, great, because they're getting paid to go to a race. But what I didn't know is they've got managers and I got to deal with their managers. Yep. So so we then, we then it carried on because then we decided, okay, that failed, but let, let's learn from our mistake. Let's go to the managers rather than the athletes. And so we found this manager who was actually Rispa's manager, an Italian guy. And now, now we, now the next race coming up that we could, that we could target that was again, 50 miles, not too technical was, was the North face 50. And this particularly worked because it had a decent prize money, you know, so this was the incentives was building 
and so he he was interested in this. Uh, and so we got Rispa and and by now Francis had kind of moved on. I think he won won a big marathon somewhere and he was like ultra running. He didn't need <laughs> didn't need us anymore. <laughs> he, he was back to the rose. But this guy, Antonio, the manager, said, Well, I've got an Ethiopian guy who came second at Comrades. So that was interesting. And and then I'd already been thinking that the Ethiopians do more kind of mountain, more technical running. They actually run on these very technical trails a lot of the yeah. time. So I thought, okay, well, let, let's get the Ethiopian guy in Rispa. Uh, and then and then it was just, you know, the gods were against us by that point because then it was the wildfires in California canceled the race. And Rispa didn't get her visa anyway, so she never got to any of the races. Mm. He, he actually, because the race wasn't canceled until about three days before. I don't know if you remember, it was a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah. So he turns up in California and then finds the race canceled. Which would never happen in a road marathon. You're not getting a road marathon canceled by wildfires. No, well, exactly. Well, I guess if there, it would have had to be there, right? The air was like thick. I remember that year. I think San Francisco, probably like it is now, was a few weeks ago. I mean, it was, I don't think it was safe to run. But he he ended up running. Anyway, then there was this idea to run JFK 50. Mm Mm-hmm. But then it was Thanksgiving weekend and the flights to like from California to, I think it's in Maryland or New York, somewhere over yeah, there, yeah. the East Coast anyway, were just, you know, astronomical. And I was, oh, so he ended up running a, a road marathon after all. Of course. So this whole thing has been a shit show is, this, is, the, yeah. is, the, is yeah. the summary of it. I mean, in, at every step. There's been yeah. something that's gone wrong, some point of preparation that has gone south. Mm. Nature has intervened. But yeah. I, I do feel that I, I still, e- even though there have been these like novel attempts, and this is all due with all due respect to you because you put in mm. a lot of you know effort yeah. for this. I still feel that it's a long way from materializing into something that's sustainable. Whereas you put it, it's part of their running fabric. Because right now it's just like, you know, we're having to like cherry pick athletes out and make these one-off situations and things like that. And they really don't understand it. So the, the gap between where they're at right now and, and and where they could be where ultra running is like a part of their running fabric, just like 5k, 10k marathon is part of their running fabric, I think is, is, is a long ways off. But I, but I don't think it necessarily would take that much because I think if you got a few guys coming back, from you know what they call in Kenya they call it abroad doesn't matter where you go you go off and you come back with money everybody wants to know what what's what's happened to that guy what what's he done and I think if a few of them could get some success in it it would snowball because the thing is the training is I think obviously there's a lot to learn in the training but you know they're happy to go long they're happy there's you know they they'll often go for 50k like training runs just because they feel like it, you know, not all of them, but some of them, and they can do that. No problem. And they can go on the hills and they can go on the trails, but it's, it's the mind. It's understanding the ultra running world and how it works and how, and, and just having this idea that, that it is an option, that it is a, 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 and like dealing with that model, that prize money isn't necessarily going to be as big, but like in, in, in a 10 where I, I spend most of my time when I'm in Kenya, for every athlete who's won a marathon, won a half marathon, there's 20 who could probably run a two sub 215 marathon, could probably run a decent 
ultramarathon, but aren't doing anything because they can't get out of the country. So they're all looking for opportunities. So, you know, if you, you know, took them on long training runs, got them on the hills and worked out who was good at that. I I mean, it would be a big project. That's the thing. I was dipping my toe in and I don't think you can, you can't dip your toe in. It would take one of these managers to basically go, okay, let's set up an ultra running team. We'll get, and the other thing they wanted to train. So they had this problem where they didn't want to do this long training on their own. So Kenyans like to train in a group, Mm -hmm. but there was only the two of them. And one was male, one was female. And so they were at different speeds and they were like, well, I went there. They said to me, I want you to pay for uh, someone to be my training partner. And I was like, well, you know, we're not like, we're not like falling, you know, sinking in money here. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is a small budget project. You know, we don't have like Salomon or, or Nike behind us. But, uh, you know, I think you'd need like an almost like an ultra running team. It's kind of interesting because somebody went into Iten and set up a, a cycling team. Yeah, right. Is much more of a leap than ultra running. You know, from from marathon running to cycling, that's like, whoa. <laughs> Whereas ultra running is much more feasible, but it needs someone with a bit more time and a bit more patience. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But here's what ultra runners, like this audience is is kind of dominant in the United States, right? Yeah. The performance piece of it, the proof will be in the pudding. Like we can speculate yeah. all we want to. Oh, they're going to come over and dominate. Oh, they can't figure it out. What? Like whatever. Yeah. Like that's all speculation. Yeah. And I'm 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 a, I'm an a, an advocate for athletes and just like let the athletes tell that story, right? Yeah. But I think from a community standpoint, the ultra running community would kind of want to know. Well, is this something that they are going to be a part of? Be a part of the community? Yeah. Or is yeah. it just going to be something that they just kind of do, right? Yeah. What's your yeah. you you've been there, right? You've you're one of the few people that has an intimate level of knowledge within ultra running. You know how community centric we are, yeah. and with the runners in Kenya. Do you think? Do you, what do you think about that aspect? Like just being having ultra running being part of more part of like their fabric or their community. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question, and again, it is theoretical, but. You know, like, so this guy, Mohammed, who went to the race in California, he ended up, he got really into it. He ended up, like I mentioned, the last line of that chapter is he ends up handing out Thanksgiving turkeys with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> but he's not like... <laughs> bizarre ending to that story. That's so hilarious. It's brilliant. There's, I've got some brilliant footage of it as well. Uh, and, and Arnie's introducing him as... The, one of the world's greatest runners. All he means is like, because he's Ethiopian, yeah, but like yeah. he actually said, and we have today one of the world's greatest runners. And that's Mohammed Teman, who's obviously not, you know, he's thinking, wow, that's a big accolade for me. But uh, but he was sticking around, you know, this was like the night of the race. He was there at the at the post-race event, handing out the, the turkey. So I think it all depends on, there is there is a sense, and Kenyans do do this, and, and Ethiopians do this, where they they're going to the race to make the money, and I think it depends on the race if they include them or not. And I think if they turn up and they just bust into the start, they do the race, they're whisked off back to the hotel, they're taken to the prize giving. That's all they'll do. They're quite happy with that. They're, right. they're quite happy with that. But actually, for a lot of Kenyans, it's it's two things going getting a race aboard one is is the money but the other two is the experience and they really do like i, I had this guy uh, jaffet coach come over for for races 
Uh, he was he was like my best friend of the Kenyan runners. He he wasn't a particular star runner, but he he came over. He did okay in a few, like he did came second in the Edinburgh Marathon in Scotland. But he he would just he would love it, and he would walk around Edinburgh the next day, and and he was amazed because people would recognize him from the race, and he'd be like signing autographs, and he's oh this is amazing, and he was so happy. But he was so happy to go back to Kenya and tell the stories. I got to tell people all the stories. And then everyone was like, he went abroad. What did he find out? And it, and so they do see it as an adventure. And he says his dream was always to travel abroad. And they hear these stories of runners going abroad. And I've seen both sides. I've seen races where with him, where I've been with him and where you're just basically in the hotel room, you're taking the start of the race, race finishes, you're taking back to the hotel, taking back to the airport. And I feel like, they're, they're okay with that. I mean, they basically take things as they come. Everything for them, if they're not like slogging their guts out all day digging the field, which is what their parents did and their cousins do and their brothers and sisters do, they're happy. They're in a nice hotel. They've been whisked around. But give them the chance to get involved. And, and, and I found in my experience with the Kenyan runners I've been with, they're really keen on that. And, and I think if a race did that and and i think with ultra running it's not i wouldn't necessarily be any different but i think it would happen more likely to happen in ultra running because i think that's the nature of the sport it's like it's not as clinical as some of these big marathon races where they're just like the elite kenyans just to kind of get the times up you know it's all about times there the race to qualify as a certain bronze level Mm -hmm. silver level iaaf race needs to have certain times achieved and there's time bonuses the fact of them just being there, being a Kenyan, is exciting. And, and the whole community would, I'm sure, almost, I couldn't imagine an ultra race where that wouldn't be kind of exciting for everybody who's there. I mean, the one guy, the one race we did get him over to, we got uh, Francis over to the UK. I remember because I, I actually uh, ran around, I think it was it was five laps. And I think on the second lap, I just decided just to kind of follow them, just to because, you know, they were running at a pace I could just about do 10 miles at. And uh, this this other guy in the race thought I was in the race. And he said, he said, turn around, he said, can you believe it? We're running against the Kenyan. <laughs> and he was so excited. And uh, and like you say, some of the runners I spoke to, I remember Sage Canada and, and in the US, particularly Zach, uh, and, and Kil- um, Jim Wamsey as well. He, and he was interesting because he he... I mean, what I was going to say is that they were they were excited about the opportunity, like you said, to to kind of test themselves against these guys, and and I think there was a sense that they might be this good on the road, but when they step into our territory, it's going to be a more even fight, and we we you know we might show them a thing or two here. And Jim Wamsey said that he said, and I, I think it depends. I think there's a massive difference between fifty miles and hundred miles. Yeah, massive difference. Yeah. So he said you can't take like a two or eight guy and stick him in a hundred mile race like Western States, yeah. for example. Now that would be a real test. And, and then there you'd need a much bigger leap of, of kind of culture and, and training and hundred percent. And, 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 and that would be more interesting in a way because they, they're the, in some ways, the biggest races are kind of the hundred milers. Right. The, you think of the biggest races, Western States, UTMB, Spartathlon, you know, they're, they're longer. And I think, for for better or for worse they're they're the races that but you'd have to build up to that yeah and that's what i've always told people it's like first the ultra running community is a very accepting one 
like we welcome people with open arms doesn't doesn't matter where they come from what their background is what their socioeconomic status is or anything like that and you've seen that firsthand like it's all one big you know happy family out there and so to the point to where you know, if people come in that are not traditional ultra runners, it doesn't, like, we don't care. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter if they're elite yeah. runners, not elite runners, whatever walk of life. I, I think that yeah. in general, it's a very accepting, accepting community. And so to your point to where we can bring an athlete in and not just treat them as a commodity, right? To yeah. raise the profile of the race or raise the profile of the situation or whatever, really treat them as part of the community. I think we'll check that box you know, yeah. put a gold star next to it. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing is, is, but this is me predicting things. And if COVID has taught me anything, I'm horrible <laughs> at this, but I'm still going to do it because I don't mind being wrong every once in a while. But I do think that the learning curve is going to be, it's going to be slower than what most people realize because yeah. the sports of marathon running and trail and ultra running are quite are quite different. It's not yeah. Venus and Mars or Pluto and Earth or something like that different. Yeah. But it's different enough to where you just can't plop yourself in and expect to have success. And that difference is particularly accentuated when you start to go up in distances. You mentioned 100K, 100 miles and kind of and kind yeah. of even further that that difference is then magnified. And so, yeah, I mean, let's just say there was a program, right? You had a Kenyan team. And they all trained together and they all learned and they got some sort of counsel and advice on how to adapt their physiology and their skills into a 50K or a 50 mile. They'd come over and they would have some success. Yeah. But that would probably be the worst that they would do. Yeah. Because every year they would get to build off of that. And you've seen yeah. the culture there. They learn from each other, right? Yeah. So that group yeah. comes back. They filter out the information to everybody else. And everybody thinks it's awesome, hopefully. <laughs> and then yeah. you get more people. And then they learn from those mistakes. And then you get more people to do it. And they learn from those mistakes. And so, yeah, we do it as a one-off, a total like one-off type of deal. It probably is going to – it doesn't have a very high likelihood of succeeding. Let's put it that way. But if you set it up as a multi-year proposition year after year after year, that's where it actually has some teeth to it and is more interesting from my perspective. Yeah. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And and in some ways that's, you know, that's how the Kenyan success has happened. In some ways it's, you know, that's what happened. And then you end up in this situation where you've got so many runners trying to do marathons and half marathons that, you know, you're going to find some, some talent there some and 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 if you just pick one random kenyan guy because he's a good marathon runner you you know it's like you know the chance is one in a thousand that he's also going to be a brilliant ultra runner but if you take a thousand you're going to find the one who could be a brilliant <laughs> ultra runner so yeah i mean it's it i i know exactly what you mean and in some ways <clears throat> my my project uh yeah it didn't really have the i couldn't get the backing in and we didn't have the scope uh, and, and which is a shame and, and, and perhaps it's something I should revisit or, or if not me, somebody should, because I think, I think at the end, eventually, you know, when, when ultra running, you know, is going to be an Olympic sport, <laughs> hopefully one day where it's like, a, where it's like, if, if it, if this happens, you know, if it becomes this kind of global sport, I mean, there's no reason why there shouldn't be people from all over the world. I mean, it's, it, there's another interesting story, which is completely unconnected, but you know, the Chinese have, before COVID struck and China became 
isolated and, and everything's got fragmented. But like last year, the year before 2019, the Chinese were starting to do very well. And the year before mm -hmm. in, in some of the, the big mountain races, there was the Hong Kong. I mean, I know that's on home territory, but I think there were some big names from the US went over there. Yep. And the year before they, they, you know, I think, I think maybe Dylan Bauman won it or, or Hayden Hawks or someone like that. Tom Evans from the UK was second. That was 2018, 2019, the same kind of caliber athlete went over there and none of them got in the top 10. And, uh, and then UTMB, you had uh, one of the races was won by one of the Chinese women. There was a guy second in the CCC. So, and apparently I haven't been to China. I was just before COVID struck, I was on my way to do a piece <laughs> about ultra running in China. And I was very excited about it. And, and, you know, it's not just the Kenyans. There's other oh, parts no. of the world that maybe there's there's potential there. You know, they've got the mountains. They've got a massive population. They've never really got into road running, but if they got into, you know, maybe the Indians or the South Americans, there's it, it's a potential, you know, all over the place. But it, but these things need a fire. They need a light. They need to spark, and then that spark needs to catch. And yeah. you know, it it that's what happened in running in Kenya, but it could happen somewhere else in ultra running well the the trail and ultra running scene in china is off the charts just hardly anybody knows about it because it mm. even before covid it was so isolated and it's hard to get information yeah. out there and and we've seen it i mean there's there 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 are chinese runners that come out of china and they compete in whatever races and they typically do pretty well yeah. but there's a whole scene within their country that yeah. you know largely goes unheard of and underwatched and, and underrepresented in terms of, you know, how, how good they actually are. So what I, what I hope, and this is like a sinister hope of mine, you know, in my evil yeah. universe here, that, that after this podcast airs, there, there's some people out there that go, Hey, you know what? I'm going to help. I'm going to help make this happen. So yeah. if they come to you, we'll put all of your contact information in the show notes so you can get all yeah. the peanut gallery coming after oh. you and everybody else. If so, when somebody comes to you and say, Hey, we're, we're going to make this happen. Yeah. We've batted around a few like first steps to like, yeah. to catalyze the whole situation. But what in your estimation are like the linchpins in, in pulling it off and making it sustainable? Yeah. Well, I, th I think it would be to establish a group in Kenya. So they're, they're kind of a group of ultra runners. So they're, they're like, there's all these training camps in Kenya and there's 20, 30 athletes in there. And they're very cheap to run because these athletes, they're not being paid to be in that camp. They're kind of, they, they pay their way and then they become part of this group. They train together on the basis that they're all under the same manager. And then that manager will do his best to get them. He's just looking after them, but he's, he's not paying them to be in his group. He's, they've just got this understanding. You're, they, they do sign a contract, <clears throat> but the only money changes hand is when they get a race. So you, you'd set up a, a training camp of ultra runners. I think is the idea and you'd need a, you need a manager. Now, obviously for that to work because there isn't the prize money, you need a sponsor. Now that would, that could be, I mean, this cycling team in, in, in Iten is actually sponsored by a French hedge fund manager and it doesn't have to be a clothing company. You know, it could be a very rich individual. So hint, hint, any rich <laughs> individuals out there, <laughs> but it could be, a, you know, it could be a, a clothing company as well. It could be a, a, you know, an ultra running, I don't know, you know, Salomon or someone could say, well, let's, let's set up a, 
Kenyan ultra running team, you know, and that that's what it would take. And I think then that group, you'd have to have the right coach. You'd have to kind of, you know, and then, then they'd be working on a schedule that they're, they're training for ultra running. They're not, they're not marathon runners who are just thinking if I get a chance, I'll do an ultra run. Like you said, you can't, you can't, I don't think you can be training for both. You, you basically, you make that commitment. Okay. I'm working with this manager. He's going to get me ultra running. I'm going to do ultra running. And, and, you know, and that doesn't seem, I mean, while that, that would be a leap for Kenyans, it would be a leap for the Kenyan system. It doesn't seem unfeasible to me. No, totally. That That's exactly what I was thinking as you were describing that. I'm like, all oh, those elements are actually pretty easy yeah. to orchestrate. It's really not that much money that you'd be talking mm. about. You know, it's not like you're asking no. for a hundred million dollars or anything like that. I mean, it's way, yeah. way, way less than that. Yeah. And there's enough people that are interested to facilitate it. There are people like you, there's people like me, there are people like within the running industry that think it's a, that think it's an interesting yeah. to do that. I think that there's enough like people power to, to kind of pull it off. I want to bring up kind of one like really specific thing that always generates a lot of controversy in the marathon in the half marathon, 10 K 5 K 5 K world. And it's especially kind of important as we talk about the way that these teams are kind of orchestrated where they're all underneath one manager. Mm. And that's with doping and doping control, which mm. as you know, is really problematic, especially in smaller tier races where there's very little oversight from a national governing body or from the race itself, from the IOC, WADA, whoever has jurisdiction over, over the particular event. And, and the reason it's, it's, it's the reason that it, that, that it becomes a kind of like a really charged subject is because there are a lot of agents that are just quite frankly, exploitative of these athletes. Yeah. They'll bring yeah. them in, they'll dope them up. They'll go win races, which benefits them, right? Cause they're taking a cut of the prize money and somebody from the yeah. outside looking in that knows running yeah. says, this is the perfect situation for that. Because yeah. there's no, there are no rules in trail ultra running. I mean, we could barely standardize the courses sometimes, <laughs> much yeah. less have, much yeah. less having an anti-doping authority. So I just, I don't have a, like a particular like pointed question with that, but other than to open it up for a dialogue, because it is an, it, like it is an interesting subject and one that people can kind of point to that goes, that goes awry. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's that, that, that would definitely be a, a, a difficult issue to police because <clears throat> it's not always the managers who are doping up the athletes. Often the athletes are going off and getting the, the EPO usually uh, themselves. Uh, and it tends to be the, the managers who basically they're, they're not so much doing it, but they're just turning a blind eye to it. Right. Not all of them. Some of them right. are, some of them are very strong on it. And if there's any hint or any whiff or any rumor, they come down on it. But other ones are like, Okay, I'm. I can't please him. He's got his own mind. You know, he does what he wants. You know, I'm just his manager. I just get him the races. Uh, and and you know, and it's quite well known which managers are which. And uh, and that yeah. And also, like you say, it's the, the the smaller races where it's more prevalent because a there's less testing. B these guys have got less to lose. They basically if they go and run. They they haven't done many races. They're not famous in Kenya, they're not famous globally. They get caught. <clears throat> they're just a one line report somewhere in the athletics press. They disappear. They've got their money. They, they want some money. It's worth it for them. Mm -hmm. You know, the biggest stars like Kipchoge, in my mind, 
I'm not, in my mind, are not doping because they they have built this up slowly. They built this reputation. They built this following. They, you know, they're like the the elders in the in they're like the the chiefs in the in the in the community. You know, the people look up to them, and they've got a lot of reputation there. But I know I know a couple of athletes who've been done for doping, <clears throat> and they don't seem that bothered. I mean, they're obviously not running anymore. They just but they want enough money to have a house. They, they kind of carry on living in the community. People don't shun them. And so <clears throat> it is, yeah, I think that would be a big problem. You'd need, you'd need that group to be very well policed, very well educated. I mean, I think like, you know, you just thrown this at me now, so I'm not, you know, obviously it, it, it I, I agree. It would be a, a thorny issue, but I don't think, I think the manager is key in some ways in the group and the, the way that group, <clears throat> but their culture is built within that group that like, we're a group. We're not, you know, we're not diving. This is a key part of what our identity is. You know, we're not one of these groups. If someone gets caught, we don't just go, okay, well, he's not getting any races, but he still can train with us. He's still our friend. <clears throat> it's like, you know, zero tolerance would be needed and all that kind of stuff. It almost seems like you need some sort of like internal testing protocol like a lot of the mm. I'm, I'm going to use this example but it's not a very good one somebody's going to throw and throw a freaking rock at me for using it but like some of the cycling teams try to do that where they have a level of control that is in in quotes very heavy quotes above and beyond what they would have to experience from a governing body it's almost like you would have to have that within that group because they would never fall under any jurisdiction right that's that's what i kind of keep coming back to and yeah. b- before we go on any further i did not put this in the outline that i said in advance no, no, so no, no. if we're if we're scratching it answers that's kind of, that's kind of why it just struck me when we were talking about it that this would be a potential uh, a potential issue, but that shouldn't, that shouldn't prevent us from kicking it around a little bit. So that, that's what I would think is that you would have to have some sort of internal control, which is incredibly difficult. I cannot tell you how hard that is incredibly difficult to orchestrate. That would cost the most money right there. Now that I'm thinking about it, just that. I mean, in a way it's the same issue for all the groups that are there already. And, uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not aware of any of them that are doing that. So uh, it's, for, and I'm not sure why, <laughs> uh, there are certain groups that got better reputations than right. others, and that's built on the fact that they haven't had dopers within their group, or, or anyone caught at least. Uh, the, there's the integrity of the, the coach, the manager. Those kind of things are known within Kenya, but outside of Kenya, obviously not, every, not most people don't know about this. So, yeah. I think you'd need to kind of build some, particularly in ultra running, like you say, without the testing at, at most races, the, the idea would jump to people's minds pretty quickly. Well, wait there, these Kenyans are winning, but they're training in Kenya, no testing. What's to say they're not, you know, just, you know, all on EPO. You'd have to find a way of making that, being as crystal clear as you could, being, being as kind of clean as you could. Yeah, well, exactly. I'm thinking of it from the standpoint of whoever's, you know, whatever funding kind of comes in, they want the assurances to protect themselves against that criticism. Yeah. Cause that's a natural, that would be a natural kind of piece of criticism. If, if this is a big, if statement, this group comes in and dominates, right. Which is part of the speculation. That's why we're having this conversation right now. That could actually happen. The other thing on that is, is 
you're not you're not going to get the best runners joining this group sure because the culture is still very much marathon <clears throat> the prize money is still in marathon money i mean you in the you win the London Marathon in a fast time. You can take over half a million dollars home that day. You know, in Kenya, that goes a long way. Uh, and there's no ultra run that's ever going to offer that potential. And uh, the Kenyans are very confident in their own abilities. So I'd say half the Kenyans out there running probably think they can win the London Marathon given the chance, you know, and probably take that half a million dollars home. So when you're offering them, you know, you're, you're going to have – guys either so this guy francis had run a 208 but he was he was 42 uh so he was definitely a few years past his best uh and that would be a gradual process as well you you know you need to kind of really work hard to find talented athletes who were young enough and willing enough like i say to go further for less money so you're not basically you're not going to be getting Eli Kipchoge is not going to be knocking on your door to uh, to join this ultra running team. So, uh, <laughs> so if anybody's holding out hope, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, if you got that caliber athlete, then maybe you'd come over and you dominate 50 mile races. But I think you're going to have athletes at least initially who are not are not necessarily. I, I couldn't see instant domination personally. Yeah, I still I still think that the that whole scenario is 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 reasonable and just to like paint the picture we use this we use this analogy of the Kenyan cycling team that that uh that that started up um i just looked it up i just looked it up really quick so they were initially preparing for the 2020 olympics as part of their whole run-up they have a budget of like five million bucks and the running one does not need need to be nearly as comprehensive of that cycling teams are really expensive, yeah, <laughs> really, yeah. really, really expensive. expensive. But my point with that is, is the scale, the, this, the scale that you need on the economic side of things is not that far fetched that it could like, it's prohibitive from that standpoint that you could put right. together a four or five year program for, you know, half a million bucks a year, a million bucks a year. And that could be something that could actually, that could actually make a big impact. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. The more we talk about it, the more I think. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> all right. Well, well, like I said, we'll put all of your contact information in the show notes. Anybody wants to yeah. send send you a pitch deck, they're more than welcome to. I don't want you can it you can better and better the more we discuss it. Yeah, bring me on as a consultant. I don't know how much Definitely. how close I want to get to this quite yet. So we'll see. <laughs> you can come out and do some uh, you know lectures, coaching lectures. In, uh, in we'll Kenya. see. We'll see. I'm happy. Like I said, just like with the original project, I'm happy to help in any way I can, given that it's kind of orchestrated correctly, you know? Um, okay. Let's, let's pivot a little bit. You okay with that? We've gone through enough yeah, yeah. thorny issues. We, we could always say, you know, in 20 years time, when it all began with a conversation on Jason Coop's uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopefully this will contribute to higher society in some form or fashion. <laughs> that might be it. Um, I, speaking of podcasts, I want to pivot to your podcast. Which is okay. really good, by the way. And it's something that you just recently started. Yeah. So th- for everybody that's not familiar with it, tell everybody about just what it's about, what guests you're bringing on, things like that. Yeah. So it's called The Way of the Runner. Uh, and then Conversations on Running with the Darren and Finn. That's me. Uh, and I guess I didn't really have a, a, like a unique selling point, apart from the fact that I feel like I have a certain way of 
thinking about running and, and writing about running and, and kind of approaching running, which is just, you know, everybody has their own unique way. And I have a way that people seem to resonate with. And so I'm very interested in the experience of running itself, like what it feels like to run and what it feels like to be in the midst of a run, a race or a training run or, the, or a period of running. So I kind of, I always feel like I'm, I'm, I'm inching towards there's kind of a moment in each podcast where I kind of ask the really pertinent, deep question, but you can't just come out with that because people will be like, well, what do you mean? What are you talking about? <laughs> so we kind of, we kind of gradually get there to, to some lovely conversations and stories. I also love storytelling. I feel like, you know, I feel like my books are, are a series of stories and I, and I do a lot of talks and, and I really realize that if you want to engage an audience, you've got to tell stories. So I kind of pick people I, I met so far. They're all people I'd spoken to in the past, had amazing conversations with. They told me great stories. They had a great feeling for that, that sense of what running was. Uh, and, and so, uh, yeah, so, so we had this kind of very close conversation. They were like, a, it was like the conversations I was having uh, researching my books, but then sometimes just one or two lines of that would come out in the book and but i think like i had these you know these 10 pages of notes where it's all great stuff and it'd be like shame you know that no one else could sit in and listen to that conversation because that was really amazing to talk to that person uh and so i i had uh, i've had five guests on and also it's not just ultra running so it's the whole spectrum of running in 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 my idea <clears throat> and also the other thought i wanted to do initially before the lockdown happened was to do them face to face like in the same room, because I felt like if I wanted to get that intimacy and that connection and where we could really go to a deep place, I felt like it worked better if we were in the room together. But then what happened is lockdown happened. And I thought, well, I can't just stop doing my podcast. And, and But then I suddenly opened up the whole world because up until that point, it had been three British uh, people. Uh, so then suddenly I had I had more options. So so I'll go through them very quickly. The first one is is probably unknown to U.S. audience, but he's uh he's the world six-time world snooker champion. So I don't even know if Americans play snooker. You might have to describe that sport before you go any further. Yeah. <laughs> well, snooker's like pool. Do you play pool? I play pool. Yeah, I'm not very yeah. good at it, it's but like I play pool. pool. But the table's like ten times bigger. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, and this guy, Ronnie O'Sullivan, actually, he, he was asked, what's the difference between snooker and pool? And he said, well, snooker's like, you know, the Augusta, you know, what, I'm not into golf, but like, what's the big golf thing in, in Augusta? The, yeah, the Masters. The US Open, right? Yeah, yeah. And he said, pool's like crazy golf. <laughs> <laughs> so to him, snooker's like, you know, and, and, it, and for some reason, Americans don't, don't play it, but it, it's quite big in lots of parts of the world. The Chinese are very into it. Anyways, the English are very into it. And, uh, and he's a world champion, six times world champion. He's also a real maverick character. He, he, oh, he's just, he's really outspoken. He's really interesting. He's like a big star. I actually, and he, and he loves running as well. I was at the World Athletics Championships and uh, we had uh, Colin Jackson. I don't know if you remember Colin Jackson. He was the world record holder yeah. in 110 meter hurdles. Yeah. I was with Ronnie O'Sullivan, this, this guy. And he comes over and asks for Ronnie O'Sullivan's autograph. So Ronnie O'Sullivan's like a big mm. star in, in the UK. Uh, and so he, anyway, but then he's a really keen runner. I mean, just an amateur runner, but he can do a 10K in 34 minutes, 
which snooker is one of these sports which you don't associate with healthy lifestyle, sure, right? Sure. A lot of them smoke, drink beer. Yeah. And so he's out there running cross country for his uh, running club. He's running like county championships and, and, and winning races, like local races, small races. But so he's a fascinating character. So I talked to him. Then I, I'm, I'm, I didn't mean to go on so much with each person. I'll, I'll try <laughs> That's to talk totally that. cool. I want to listen to that one now. I haven't yet. Uh, he, he's brilliant. And he's got such a great, he's from East London, well, from Essex. He's just, as everything about him is totally charming and totally wonderful. Uh, then I interviewed Chrissy Wellington. Now, mm-hmm. anyone who one. knows anything about triathlon will know Chrissy Wellington, four-time world Ironman champion. And uh, what's so bizarre about her is she didn't take up triathlon even until she was 29. She'd been off, she'd been a lawyer. She'd been off traveling or doing charity work in Nepal. Hadn't done any competitive sport at all. And then just started doing some amateur triathlons, <clears throat> started winning them. Someone said, oh, you should try the Ironman. So she went to Kona and then she did, she did an Ironman somewhere else and she won it. And so she got the spot at Kona, but she was unheard of. It was a very obscure, right. tiny Ironman. <clears throat> Turns up in Kona and wins. And then, and then basically her whole career, she never lost an Ironman. She won every Ironman she ever competed in. But she, she's again, a very complex character. <clears throat> she had a, a very troubled relationship with her coach. She, uh, she had, yeah, she's a very lovely, warm person, but with, uh, with kind of issues around pleasing people and, and being what, what was driving her to success was, was very interesting. It wasn't necessarily super healthy. Uh, then I get into the ultra runners. So then I had uh, Beth Pascal. Mm-hmm. Who's a, who's a, a lovely, un, un, really understated uh, woman, but but when you get talking to her, she's <clears throat> she does open up. But she just broke the Bob Graham round record in the UK. It's an iconic round, and actually, she is. This is a. I mean, for those who don't know it, this is the kind of the heart of mountain running in the UK. These guys are tough, you know. They're they they live and breathe this stuff, and they they run it from as children and they grow up running it and they run their whole lives. And, and a lot of them <clears throat> like sheep farmers and they're super fit. And this round has, was started almost 90 years ago. And I'd say all of these top tough hill farming, uh, fell runners as they're called, have at some point given it their best shot. <clears throat> and in those uh, 90 years, Beth Pascal recorded the fourth fastest time of men and women, which is, Quite stunning, I think. And and Killian Jornet turned up last year, I think, and uh, broke a record that had been there since this 1976. There are a lot of U.S. runners that are really interested in that route, too. Like, I hear yeah. more and more about it from the people that I coach and then just kind of being around the scene. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a stunning part of, part of the world. And it's, yeah, I think the number of people who've gone there and tried it and realized how tough it is. Yeah. It, you know, it, and that was what was so amazing about Killian because there was this idea that even if Killian comes, he doesn't stand a chance. He doesn't know the terrain. He doesn't know the route. He doesn't know what he's doing. You know, like he thinks, you know, he's good in those, you know, Alps races or up in Norway, but take him to the, you know, the fell runners. And, and of course he just, he beat the record by an hour. <laughs> How many times has somebody said that about Killian? Because it's XYZ, he's not going to be able to do whatever, and he ends up doing it anyway. I know. He doesn't <laughs> stop. There's that brilliant film about the race in Alaska, Mount Marathon. Yes. 
and he turns up there and they're all like, oh, we're built different up here. He won't, he won't be able to deal with this. And of course, breaks the record. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyways, Beth, Beth broke the record there. She's, she's had some great results. Top five at Western States, top five at UTMB. Uh, and then, then I had, well, Zach Miller. So needs no introduction over there. <clears throat> so that was, that was great to talk to him. Have you been watching uh, Zach's van build? Yes. <laughs> it's going quite slowly. <laughs> Gradually getting there. For the listeners out there, Zach bought, it's like an old, it's like a, a really small school bus almost, it looks yeah. like. Yeah. And he's converting it into something. Yeah. <laughs> it's just to be determined, something that he's going to live and kind of travel in. And yeah, uh, it is happening very, I wouldn't say slowly, I would say yeah. deliberately. Yeah, in, in, yeah. In typical Zach he, he Miller style, much, does he, Zach? He, he, it's like life. Life has lived at a different pace. I love. I love when I asked him about the restrictions, the the coronavirus restrictions, and how it was affecting him. It was like, well, I don't really kind of have that lifestyle where I see a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Like, and it doesn't really me. I'm just in the mountains. You look. Le- you learn this from having visited Zach. I mean, when he was at bar camp he worked for a living. Like there are very few people that work for a living anymore. Like actually have to like do physical manual labor. Like what he was doing at bar camp, I think is kind of underappreciated by a lot of people in terms of like how hard those caretakers actually have to work on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And he was training on top of that. I know, right. And trying to train. (laughs) Anyway, I derailed you. Zach is the next one. Go yeah. listen to the Zach and one. The, it's typical the Zach. The trick one is is an is an interesting guy, Abdi Nagay. He's called. And he's uh, he's he's a Dutch marathon runner, but he's originally from Somalia. And just to very briefly summarize his life, so he twice twice escaped civil war in Somalia before he was fifteen. He he'd been sent to he'd been lived in the Netherlands for quite a long time. He'd also been sent to uh, a madras, an Islamic school in Syria, for three years. Uh, and then he discovered running when he was about 19. He was like almost professional football player, soccer player, as we call it. And he, you know, at, at junior level. Uh, and then he just in the summer, they don't off season. He did a 5k just cause he had was bored and he had nothing to do. <laughs> and he ran like 17 minutes or something. <clears throat> and so then his friends were like, you're really good. You should do this other race and you should train for it this time. So he trained for it and he went to this race in one of the cities in the Netherlands. And he was like, oh, look, all these guys look a bit like me, you know, and everyone thought he was one of the Kenyans and <laughs> Ethiopians. And he came like just behind them. He he kind of ran off with them and he, he did something like 29 minutes or something. And he's, and so suddenly he was running for the Netherlands within, and he was like, oh, I was trying to be a soccer player. I never got to national level and within like three weeks in running, I'm suddenly running for Netherlands. Like, What's going on? And they all asked when he won his first race, they said, what club, what, what, what club do you run for? And he didn't know what they meant. So he said his football club, his soccer club. <laughs> no, like, no, no, that's not a running club. He's like, well, that's, that's my team. Uh, I, I, anyway, so he now trains, <clears throat> Uh, with uh, the same group as Elliot Kipchoge and Jeffrey Kamwawar uh, in in uh, Kenya. He lives there now. So he basically, he says he first went out there and he's running around. He's on a six-week training camp to kind of get ready for the Olympics. And he's asking about the other Kenyan guys. He's like, he's, he's asking, he's going, like, how long are these all these Kenyans here for? 
And they're like, well, they live here the whole year. <laughs> they were all of them. <laughs> like, I'm coming for six weeks to like live like this and I'm trying to beat these guys. So he just moved out there. And um, yeah, he's, well, he came, I think he came ninth or 10th in Rio in the Olympics. He's around 206. So he's, again, I, you know, there's a lot of people you could talk to in Kenya would ha- would have those kind of credentials, but not many who can tell a story like Abdi. He's, you know, he can really weave a tale. So he's he's great value to listen to. I mean, we most of the podcasts we had to divide into two podcasts because they they were just so interesting. So yeah, so there you go. A, my new project. You've got moment. a really good. You've got a really good lineup, and I kind of want to know like ancillary to that. Maybe this is just for my own brainstorming purposes but what does your whiteboard look like of guests that you're trying to reach out to versus how do you like tailor it down to the one that you're going to contact next yeah i mean so far there have been people i i have been in contact with uh and, and obviously that that's dwindling the people who i think would make a really good interview uh <clears throat> then also, like I say, I began with uh, just UK runners because I thought I would I would meet them, and then I thought, imagine I'd go out to Kenya, so what, and and maybe do a few out there. So just while I was there, not just for the podcast, but so one guy I'd really love to get on is uh, Brother Colm O'Connor, the Irish coach who lives out mm. in Kenya. He he is such a great storyteller. I mean, he you know you feel like you've been in the presence, you feel like you've in the presence of a wise person when he talks, we sit, we sit around. I, I know him quite well. And whenever I have a group out in Kenya, we sit around by the fire and I just ask him one question, like, you know, so, you know, tell us about the role of, you know, well, he's, he's this St. Patrick's school is where he first started coaching. Tell us the role of St. Patrick's in Kenyan running. And for two hours he'll talk and it's just gold, all of it. So, so he'd be great. You know, I, I, a lot of my, a lot of my people I want to talk to are ultra runners for some reason. I guess that's my most recent thing, and I think there's a lot of good stories in ultra running. So I, I'm trying to not, I'm trying to think. Well, who can I talk to who's not an ultra runner? Because <laughs> there's a guy Damien Hall who I know very well yeah. in the UK. There's Rob Evan, uh, Tom Evans, sorry. Tom Evans is really interesting because he's been running like some really fast 5Ks, yeah. and he actually ran. European cross country championships. He ran for Great Britain at the, Euro, uh, the cross country. So yeah, and then he's and then he's winning. Well, he's coming second in Western States yep. almost within a year of running. Uh, I think he ran thirteen. I don't want to get the wrong time, but thirteen something for a five k the other night. So he's interesting. He's got a good good backstory as well. And he's he a good dude did, too. He's a good good guy total professional yeah. athlete like t- treats yeah. it as a as a vocation oh, yeah. or a profession really really good guy yeah he's got a he's got a very professional attitude not just to his training but to his whole career actually yeah. he's got a he's his i don't know if you guys know and say he was one of the biggest sporting stars in in the uk is david beckham yeah. right the, the soccer player so he's same agent as tom evans so i mean you know, they they he, he and this guy just loves ultra running. Weirdly, he's like a football agent usually, but he he loves ultra running. And he got Tom, and he's like, "This guy's young, he's good looking, he's fast. We're gonna turn him into a superstar." So he's like, he's planning his races, and so that yeah, he's interesting from from lots of points of view. Uh, someone who's always a brilliant interview is, is Camille Heron. She's uh, 
she doesn't hold back with her stories. That is true. So, so yeah, but I, also I just like, I'm, oh, there's more ultra runners. I want to go and I want, I want diversity, you know, different people from different walks of life. So one, one guy I really wanted to is Steve Cram, who was my, oh, my personally, yeah. my childhood hero. Yep. Me too. Uh, you know, and he's still doing the commentating and you know, world record holder at the mile and stuff. So, you know, not just you know, from one extreme to the other and we'll see where we go with it, but it's it's kind of fun to have that whiteboard and think who who could I talk to? I mean, Mo Farah would be great, but I don't think I can get him. He's very uh, protective, <laughs> very of reclusive. His yeah. Well, keep doing it. You've got a good lineup so far. You've got a great way of telling those stories, both in your books and then also in an audio format. And I, I honestly okay. think it's a treasure. It's fun. So keep doing it, man. I know it's hard Thank with you. COVID and not being able to sit yeah. down face to face. I've gone through the same. I've gone through the same thing, yeah. but. Trust me, the listeners will adapt. Yeah. People are used to video conferences now. You know, it's yeah, it's not the best audio quality. And sometimes you end up talking over each other and there's some sort of delay. Like those are all like perfectionist things that you get worried about. People are forgiving as long as it's a good story and a good character and you bring the best out of that character, which you do. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think because the last two were both done like that. And and I don't think I don't think we lost anything. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. Awesome, man. All right. We're going to let you go. That was really fun. I hope that we get, I hope that we gave some people some fuel and ammunition to get some of these projects off the ground. So I'm hashtag, sorry, not sorry. If I just put a whole lot more work on your plates because of that. Um, but Hey, maybe we'll get it done some point in our lifetimes and it will be a cool thing. And yeah, we can come back and say, see, it was all because we did that one podcast that one time. Yeah, I just have the vision of that that UTMB start line, which is always so epic. And there's, there's the Kenyan guy with a little bag on, and he's ready to roll. He's like, he's not necessarily going to win, but he's going to be in the mix. And awesome. Make it happen, it. man. We'll make it happen. All right. Appreciate your time, man. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. And there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Ad Darahan for coming on the podcast today. And bigger thanks for putting up with my complete lack of correct pronunciation with your name. I'm sure you get it a lot. Everybody should go and check out the three books that I mentioned at the onset of this podcast. They're absolutely fantastic. The links to those are in the show notes and also Adarahan's podcast. It is amazing as well. Go check it out. The links are in the show notes. Appreciate the heck out of everybody listening today and we will see you out on the trails.